The pandemic, obviously, is a unique event in the sense that it's ongoing through time and you make a lot of micro decisions as you go. And the landscape, the decision landscape, so to speak, or the decision challenges that you face fluctuate, evolve and change as you go. Hi, this is Eric Bagley in the Rocket FM studios in Stockholm, Sweden. Time now for episode 22 of the podcast, Corona Crisis Once Upon a Pandemic. And it's a dark day. We're recording this here on the 19th of December, 2020, and uh, another dark day in Stockholm. It's been a rough uh, autumn and quite a bit different, Mark, than I would say uh, it was in the spring, even though that was when the crisis hit. And of course, that was a huge, huge deal and uh, changed life pretty uh, substantially during the spring. It feels somehow, to me at least, it feels just more bleak this time of year. And I'm not sure if it's because the days are getting darker, the weather's been worse, but also the um, the numbers are um, out of control, it feels like. What do you say? Mark Vandenbosch, by the way, co-host of this podcast on the phone line. Yeah, absolutely. The numbers are staggering. I think in the spring, we were heading towards the light, right, towards the summer. We saw the numbers starting to go down a little bit. And also the crisis was fairly new. Now the situation is different. We're heading into the darkness, both figuratively, but also statistically. The numbers we're seeing now are really numb. I mean, it's almost like I think the whole world is in a state of shock. Yeah, to some extent, I, I feel this way myself. And uh, looking around me, I think a lot of people also are just shaking their heads, can't believe what's happening. We had uh, an excess of 3,700 fatalities in the United States yesterday, numbers that uh, we haven't seen at any point during the year, even when it was at its worst in the springtime. And right here in our own backyard in Sweden, uh, our highest daily average is seven-day moving average. That's how they look at it here because uh, deaths are not always reported on the actual date. We're up to 74 on average per day now, which are numbers that are similar to what we saw the worst of it in April. So uh, obviously this second or third wave or whatever you want to call it is, is hitting us extremely hard. Yeah, 74, you say, is an average. But some days, some days it's like 160. I mean, some days it's it's truly shocking, actually. And now, so by the way, I should also mention uh, that we will have a guest a little bit later on, as we always do, an expert guest on this podcast. Today's guest is uh, Professor Daniel Norstedt. He's a professor of political science at Uppsala University. He's going to talk about uh, learning and adaptation and some other topics and transformation, some some sort of big picture stuff uh, and some some theoretical stuff, but also talk about some of the uh, implementations of some of these um, measures here in Sweden. What we learned or what we maybe failed to learn to some extent between the first wave and the second wave here in Sweden, because it really does feel like there's two very distinct periods in this pandemic. Because here in Sweden, maybe unlike some other countries, for a couple of months, it really felt like things were kind of back to normal. The crisis was kind of over. But certainly, um, I think people have been thrown for a loop now in the last uh, month and a half or two months. So Daniel Nostad will be our expert guest uh, a little bit later on in this podcast. So uh, Mark, back to you and some of these numbers. And also, uh, I think we should also mention that and this is world news, but uh, we'll mention it as well because we've covered France quite a bit. The president of the country of your birth has uh, COVID-19 as well. Yeah, a lot of world leaders actually have gotten this. And uh, all of them, uh, of course, benefiting from the best health care you could possibly get, have all gotten through it fairly successfully uh, to date. I hope that Macron does as well. It's always interesting to see a certain leaders who, in some cases, like Trump or I guess in, in Latin America as well, there have been leaders who have been sort of downplaying the crisis to some extent, then they get hit with the virus and then they come through it 
and they see it as evidence that it wasn't that big of a deal. But of course, the medical care that they received is quite different from the average individual. So I'm not sure that it's a good benchmark. But you talked a little bit about lessons learned. And one of the things that I think is interesting and uh, tragic, really, is in Sweden in the springtime, it's quite accepted at this point that this country failed to protect the elderly mostly people in uh, nursing homes, which represented, I think, 70, 80% of all fatalities. But in the second wave, you would think at this point, we have a pretty good handle on how to protect the elderly. And yet they're getting hit again. It's almost unconscionable that uh, we are still failing to, to protect those most vulnerable. You know, a lot of people are saying they're surprised by this second wave, but a lot of experts actually predicted it. And you mentioned uh, predictions, Mark. One prediction that does not seem to have come to pass, uh, it was uh, kind of exposed or kind of revisited the other night on uh, the Swedish National News uh, about uh, some of the projections that the Swedish um, Public Health Agency had made about the um, the pathway of the uh, pandemic uh, in this uh, second wave. And uh, we're way beyond any. They did three scenarios and we're, we're much worse off than any of the three scenarios that they uh, that they put forward just a few months ago. So it really shows that Either it's hard to predict, which obviously it is, but maybe how over-optimistic some of the authorities might have been in this country and not unique to Sweden, other places in the world as well. And actually, it's one of the reasons why the government is trying to find some new mechanisms to tighten the screws, because unlike many other countries, there is really no legal framework to impose uh, real restrictions. And the most the Swedish government can do is issue recommendations. At this point, it seems that people are not disciplined enough because you do see these numbers continuing to spike. So there's actually uh, a measure up, I think, in the Swedish parliament for a decision in the very near future to impose some new interim, or I should say temporary laws, which will allow the government to, to really crack down and impose some real restrictions with some teeth in the very near future, which might include closing shopping malls, for example. I mean, people are out in force uh, doing their Christmas shoppings, might Im- impose, you know, shutting down restaurants completely, those sorts of restrictions, which unfortunately may become necessary. Because yeah, a lot of people still are out and about these days uh, here in Stockholm. And uh, even though that the uh, cases are spiking, and just from my own personal experiences, I mean, um, my daughter's teacher, who's actually in a risk group, she has coronavirus. Um, several of my daughter's classmates uh, have coronavirus. And, and actually, so one statistic I saw in the paper this morning, um, quite, I don't know, shocking, but is that uh, 38% of the people who get uh, tested for uh, antibodies here in Sweden, or in Stockholm, I should say, 38% of those in Stockholm getting tested for antibodies actually have them. So I don't know if that's an indication that there's 38% of the population has it, probably not quite that much, but it seems like some of the, we're approaching some of these numbers that... We used to talk about in terms of herd immunity, what the herd immunity level was, whether it's 40% of the population, 60, 70. But um, if, if that's somehow reflective of the um, spread of the disease in Stockholm, that's that's pretty high, 38%. It almost seems that it's a rite of passage. I, I still haven't uh, gotten corona myself, even though I thought I did back in March, but I tested for antibodies. I didn't have any. But it seems if you look around our you know, our, our friends, families, uh, people we work with, uh, it's become very, very common. And uh, for most people, it's you know still, thankfully, uh, not too big of a deal. Uh, but that's statistically speaking, of course, when you have a couple of percent of the population who do react very, very adversely to the virus, then the numbers in the aggregate, if the whole world gets it, become absolutely uh, astronomical. And I, I think that's what we're dealing with is an unbelievably infectious uh, disease. 
Yeah, and some of these new restrictions, Mark, that uh, were just announced, was it last night or the night before, uh, following also uh, earlier in the week, a kind of a big cultural moment in some sense. Uh, the uh, the King of Sweden saying that uh, we have failed as a nation in our response. Prime Minister of Sweden didn't exactly disagree. And uh, just a couple of days later, new restrictions were implemented. Um, I think the authorities are now seeing, and I think there is also some daylight between what the politicians, the government is saying, and the public health authorities. And that, that of course, is a big part of the Swedish story is who decides these things, right? Is it the is it the uh, very powerful public agencies or is it the, the political leaders? It'll also be interesting, you know, uh, to see how people react to that vaccine. I think there's in total 63 different vaccines that are undergoing trials. Two of them are basically ready for, for a general release, now the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. And I think Sweden actually is going to get both of them. The first vaccine is landing in this country and expect to be approved around Christmas. But Will people get vaccinated? There's been an anti-vaccine movement that has grown considerably over the last several years. You see this in you know, the numbers of some of these formerly eradicated disease coming back up, like the measles. And now as this vaccine is coming into play uh, in uh, all around the world, but specifically in Sweden, where there's been very negative experience with a similar vaccine some 10, 15 years ago, we'll see how people react. I'm pretty confident that people in Sweden will follow the recommendations of the authorities uh, and get vaccinated. Although, the, as you mentioned, this very uh, sad experience with the uh, swine flu vaccine, where I think it was six or 700 people got uh, narcolepsy permanently, certainly makes you makes you a bit concerned. But I do think the people here in Sweden will go forward and, and get themselves uh, vaccinated. Talking a lot about uh, Sweden here on this episode here, Mark. Um, I don't know, do we have any international news to, to kind of spread things around? I do have an anecdote uh, in relation to, for example, how other countries are dealing with this and their daily reality, because we've been extremely fortunate here. Let's face it, our day-to-day existence has not been that impacted. So our quality of life for those of us who have been healthy has been fairly high compared to the rest of the world. But uh, in Italy, for example, I, I have friend. And he mentioned that uh, in Milan, he has a, a colleague that had his kid in school and the kid apparently coughed in the hallway. A janitor heard him cough just one time, which means that the kid was sent home immediately and asked to take a corona test that same day. And so what the parents had to do is drive to a corona test center and wait in the car to be tested for a total of 22 hours. <laughs> 22 hours to get the corona test, which came back negative just because the kid had a, a tickle in the back of his throat. So it shows, you know, how seriously certain countries take this. Well, yeah, I mean, of course, that, that's, a, that's a miserable experience. But I, I got to tell you, here in Sweden, my daughter had something similar. She coughed one time. She hasn't been sick, any other symptoms, nothing. And uh, she was sent home for a week. You know, she, they didn't force her to take a test or anything, but she's well, just basically clearing her throat. So uh, even in this country, you know, I think some, I think maybe it's from school to school, but also uh, these these things, people are, are quite concerned. Not as concerned, perhaps, as, as some of the other countries, but uh, but here in Sweden, I think people, especially this autumn, I think much much more so than this spring. I think this autumn, people are are, are more jittery. I think a little more shaken by the situation, and I do think that the we've had you know a month or so of, of miserable weather. It gets darker. We're very far north. Here. It gets darker um, every day. So I think it's this general feeling of of kind of the, the walls kind of closing in on people. I think has has really made this country do some soul searching. I would say. Absolutely. I mean, I think we've only had uh, what one or two hours of sunlight in the last 30 days here in Stockholm. So, yeah, we, we are all suffering from uh, vitamin D deficiencies. And I'm sure that our uh, aggregate psyches are being impacted by that, in addition, of course, to this uh, great pandemic. 
Okay, Mark. So what do you say we move to our expert guest now, uh, Professor Daniel Norstedt of Uppsala University. He's a political scientist, uh, an expert on crisis management, and he's part of an expert group uh, that's advising the Swedish Corona Commission, uh, specifically uh, on his part uh, on uh, issues of preparedness. We'll get into that. We'll talk about transformation, some of the big picture stuff that might be uh, coming as a result of, uh, of major crises such as no doubt, this uh, this pandemic. And we start by talking about uh, the idea of, uh, of learning from wave one to wave two, and also a more general sense of the idea of uh, adaptation, how authorities can uh, adapt their, um, their uh, procedures and their, their measures they take through learning from uh, previous experiences. And I think that's a very interesting case because of the uh, this very, two very distinct waves, wave one and wave two of the coronavirus crisis. So here's Professor Daniel Norstedt of Uppsala University. First off, I do think there's a political dimension uh, attached to the concept of learning, which is slightly normative to its flavor that kind of suggests that you should be able to draw the necessary lesson, uh, lessons and then based on that, fix problems to improve the response. So I do think that is important to keep in mind when we talk about learning in this context of crisis and, and emergency management. In addition to that, there is this strong tradition of thinking around the concept of adaptation, uh, which is more related to the process of gradually adjusting, drawing lessons, perhaps engage in a little bit uh, of experimentation. Again, this goes back to the notion of crisis management not being an exact science. So it's a little bit of a trial and error, the way that organizations and uh, the individuals occupying those organizations through time engage in decision-making and based on decision-making and the actions taken, they gradually evaluate their decisions and actions in context of events as they unfold. So from that perspective, it is important to think about this uh, from a broader perspective of gradual adaptations. And uh, the pandemic, obviously, is a unique event in the sense that it's ongoing through time. And you make a lot of micro decisions uh, as you go. And the landscape, the decision landscape, so to speak, or the decision challenges that you face fluctuate, evolve, and change as you go. So there's this constant need for reviewing, evaluating, and as I said earlier, partially also actually experimenting with your response to the event. So that's basically the notion of adaptation, which has also then been linked to the way that organizations prepare for disasters and emergencies. And there's this emphasis on uh, the need to maintain adaptive capacity Uh, which is this kind of combination of uh, human and organizational resources to ensure that you are able through time to uh, maintain flexibility, innovation, and adjustment. In a nutshell, that's what adaptation is about. It's very interesting. It's a word I, I, I tend to associate with climate change, which is more of, a, let's say, a, a more permanent condition, whereas in a crisis management context, you think of crises as being very short, very violent, um, urgent events. But I guess in, in this case uh, of the pandemic, it's it's both, right? It's, it's sort of an ongoing thing with 
the first wave, which was a couple of months. Now there was there was something of a pause, not really, but a little bit of a pause here in Sweden at least. Now we're back into this this second wave of full on, really. Um, mm. But this adaptation, this this is something that, that the organizations, the leaders, they're able to evaluate, you know, learn from from what has happened before, learn more about the the, the sort of the epidemiology of the disease, but also some mm. of the, these measures that were taken perhaps in the first wave, and hopefully implement them now here in the second wave. Do you see any, any evidence that this is that this is happening, that there has been some sort of adaptation uh, here in Sweden and, and elsewhere in the world? Absolutely. I think uh, the, the best example probably is what we're seeing in uh, the medical profession and the, uh, the public health sector more generally and the, uh, the ability of mobilizing resources and knowledge through time to um, actually improve the understanding of the virus uh, as such, I think, and the enormous amount of investments that have been uh, made into uh, sustaining, establishing collaboration to ensure that new knowledge is produced, not only produced, but also shared among many different actors and organizations. And I do think that uh, has been happening in Sweden between uh, the first wave and the second, probably also, uh, or most likely, uh, internationally as well. And I, I do think there's another kind of a related observation to this is that uh, this type of adaptation takes place at different levels, and there's so many different actors involved. So I, I think it's accurate to think about this as single organizations that learn. For example, if you work at a hospital, you're most likely to have drawn lessons between the first wave and the second wave, and you kind of adjust uh, resources, uh, routines, practices, uh, standard operating procedures, etc. But there's also adaptations involving multiple organizations working together. So these more kind of what uh, some people talk about as collaborative arrangements involving multiple organizations working together and also improving their understandings and experiences around ways to collaborate to ensure uh, sharing of resources and uh, coordination of activities, etc. through time. So yes, I absolutely think that is uh, one of the prime examples we have so far that is it's limited to the uh, uh, the medical profession and the public health sector. So that's one example. It's a very subjective um, observation from from me, but um, it seems that the second wave it's a much uh, it's a much darker tone to this. The way this is being covered here in Sweden, it seems like there's less um, less faith in the institutions and in some of the individuals. There's more criticism going towards the, the government, towards Anders Tegnell, the state uh, epidemiologist. It seems like there's there's been basically a, a loss of faith here in Sweden in some of these institutions that are, that are in charge of managing the crisis. Do you think that, that they're getting, I mean, even like the king the other day said that, that we have failed and the prime minister mm. kind of echoed that as well. Do you think that the, there has been any any tangible failures to adapt here that not taking some of the lessons from the first wave and being able to better handle this this uh, very substantial second wave? That's a good question, Eric. I do think, first off, I, th- I do think it's important to notice that this type of dynamic is not unique to crisis and crisis management. Eventually, there will come a phase where accountability kicks in and, you know, these blame games start to emerge and people are held accountable for the mishaps and, uh, you know, decisions that have been taken earlier on. Again, the, the uh, pandemic is unique in that sense that we have 
you know, now almost a year into this experience. And I mean, speaking from the Swedish experience, we now have in place actually, you know, public inquiry, the Swedish Corona Commission that is actually set to look into uh, and evaluate and assess the uh, Swedish response to the, the pandemic. And uh, they published the, the report, first report, uh, preliminary report on the elderly care homes and delivered some uh, critique, uh, obviously, to the government, but not only to the incumbent government, but also previous governments and other organizations for their failure in terms of setting up an effective structure around elderly care homes to prevent these devastating impacts from the pandemic that we now have seen. So I do think that plays into a broader recurrent dynamics that you see in many crisis events that these phases of accountability, blame games, etc., are starting to unfold. And uh, it's it's a quite interesting conversation to have around whether or not those phases uh, actually uh, create opportunities for uh, more more longer term lessons and reforms, or if they rather prevent more kind of objective diagnosis, more long-term lesson drawing. So that is actually a conversation that goes on in the academic literature right now, whether or not uh, that, that is the case. So, so, so yeah, accountability matters. I mean, you mentioned the uh, the Swedish uh, Corona Commission, and uh, you're you're mm-hmm. indirectly or somehow directly involved with it. Uh, you're part of a um, an expert group that's going to be doing some um, advice uh, on and some analysis on uh, the issue of preparedness. And I mean, if we're talking about two waves here, and, and, and here in Sweden, they do feel very distinct, the first wave and the second wave, because we did, I think it was August, September, really felt like the crisis was kind of over. We were expecting a second wave, and and then, but it was even on the news the other night, I think uh, the Swedish national television showed how some of the prognoses uh, that were done by Agnes Tegnell just a few months ago on where we would be right now were way off. It's much worse now than, than any of the scenarios they'd come up with. Do you think there was any... Um, failures in the preparedness in this window that we had in, let's say, July, August, September, to be ready for October, November, December? That's another good question, Eric. I think that failure, again, is uh, is a tricky word in this context because it ultimately depends on what benchmarks you're using for assessing performance. And in this case, I do think, I mean, first off, Backing up a, a little bit, I do think it is important to keep in mind that preparedness and also the, the kind of lesson learned from the first wave to the second wave, it's very much a psychological, there's very much a psychological dimension to that. And uh, there is this notion, Some sometimes you get the impression that people are expecting clear answers from, uh, you know, the statistics around uh, how far the epidemic has has gone in terms of where we are at the, the famous curve, so to speak, and what the projections are. I do think it is crucial to keep in mind the uncertainties that are involved with those projections. And if we talk about success and failure at the end of the day, but again, this is something we have to evaluate, and it also depends on what organization I think you look like. I do think uh, when we a reason around matters of success and failure in this context, I do think it matters to think about the capacity and ability of organizations to actually cope with uncertainty and uh, whether or not you are able to prepare for different scenarios. 
So I do think that goes into decision making, that goes into resource distribution, that goes into a lot of different things. But you know, when we evaluate this uh, further down the road, I do think that would be something to keep a close eye on in terms of answering your question about has there been any kind of failure or examples of failure in between the first and the second wave. So I, I do think it depends a little bit on your benchmarks and a little bit on the perspective you take. And you mentioned there, um, looking a little further down the road, if we start doing that now at this point, I mean, of course, we're still deep in this crisis. We have the vaccine on the horizon, which everyone I think is hoping is going to be like a, a deus ex machina, you know, God coming down from the sky and just kind of just wiping out the, the pandemic with this vaccine, which hopefully will happen at some point uh, sometime next year. We don't know exactly when. But if we start looking a little bit uh, downrange uh, from now, uh, Daniel, and um, so I think not just about the, some of the evaluations of this particular response and then some of these accountability and blame games and things like that, but looking some at the bigger picture. And I know another pillar of your research uh, is uh, is in the the idea of transformation and making making bigger changes, not just sort of piecemeal changes and and sort of fine tuning some of these these uh, institutions and structures that we have, but thinking more mm-hmm. on a transformative level. Perhaps you can give us some ideas of, of what you're thinking. Some of the um, the ways that this this uh, pandemic crisis could be used for transformation? Yeah. So from one perspective, I do think it's important to keep in mind, this is a quite uh, recurrent and common observation in the scientific literature uh, that I work with, within the kind of domains of public administration, public policy, political science more broadly, but also other fields such as ecology, uh, where there is this notion that change takes time and most oftenly proceeds incrementally. Uh, with these occasional bursts. Uh, So stability through time, and then all of a sudden something big happens and there is a big response. That is a common assumption in various literatures. So it's also a common popular wisdom, I would say, that uh, there's this expectation that once in a while we face these major emergencies and disasters such as the pandemic, and then there should be a rational response on behalf of uh, responsible politicians and decision makers to draw the necessary lessons and undertake their forms un- accordingly so we improve the system for future challenges. This is a very broad uh, notion in academic circles, but also in popular wisdom. However, the problem there is that the empirical basis for these claims is very actually quite thin, I would say. There's very little systematic empirical evidence in support of this. And we also show this in a recent study where we compared 85 countries all, all over the world over a period of eight years. And we found this has nothing to do with the pandemic, but exposure to other type of natural hazard events does not have an impact on the level of policy change undertaken in countries within the domain of disaster risk reduction, I should add. So that's a little bit on the empirical basis for that. You know, moving on to the projection that you asked about in relationship to the pandemic, obviously we're in that phase right now where there is a lot of debate and discussion about what was going well, what was going not so well. And this is kind of the pre-step to the next phase, will be, uh, which will be about, you know, how do we reform the system in a way uh, that we will prevent this from, you know, happening in the future. And uh, I'm, I'm a bit, uh, this is actually fascinating to think about, because if you think about, again, my example from the first report from the Swedish Corona Commission that was looking into the elderly care homes, 
they were pointing to a large number of different actors, governments, organizations as being responsible for the problems that have been uh, uh, observed uh, regarding the elderly care homes. The question then becomes, and that becomes a problem when you look into the future and think about ways to actually reform that system, because the problem is that the responsibility is distributed across a large number of different actors. So the question then becomes, how do we reform that system in a way uh, so that we can prevent this from, uh, you know, happening in the future? So the problem is very much about, you know, what some political scientists refer to as the problem of many hands, where responsibility for historical problems is distributed across so many different actors. So, And also in this particular case, that there's so much fragmentation, that there's so many different actors involved being responsible for parts of the problem, it becomes a bit tricky to point to a uh, thought-through reform that will fix most of these problems. So that's... Uh, that's quite an interesting process to follow as we move ahead. But then, you know, hey, in terms of transformation, obviously, I mean, this is the biggest event happening, you know, in a long, long time. So obviously, there will be major changes to our societies. So what I'm talking about here are more kind of more policy-oriented reforms directed at certain areas of public service. Obviously, we're just at the beginning I would say, of a long-term process where our societies will change in fundamental ways, I expect, regarding travel patterns, regarding the way we work, the way we interact with each other uh, in society. So it will be certainly one of those transformations that you pointed to uh, earlier. So absolutely, I agree with that. I mean, do you think that'll be an organic process, or do you think there'll be some sort of top-down um I don't know, uh, leadership, uh, or of course it'll be very political, different, different, different people will think differently about how society needs to be fundamentally reformed or not. I mean, there's this idea of the Great Reset, which I think is a book, mm. uh, a recent book by, I think, uh, Klaus Schwab, head of the mm. World Economic Forum, thinking in these big picture terms. And this, of course, can be very controversial to some. Um, is, is there any, do you have any thoughts on that, on how this will be steered in any way? Or do you think this will be a sort of a, a broad-based um, re-evaluation of, of, of the way we live our lives? I think both. Organically, for sure, definitely. Because, I mean, there's uh, what is unique about this event is that it is uh, affecting everyone all over the world. And that means that uh, there's uh, every single person has a unique personal experience from this event. You will, again, then we're back to adaptation. People will start to change gradually a little bit how they live their lives, I expect. Of course, it depends on, you know, where in the world you live and, uh, you know, how you live your life in terms of working lives, social relationships, etc. But there will, for sure, there will be certain level of transformation all the way down to the individual level. So that's the organic process. And, you know, moving up the ladder, uh, of course, you know, starting with like local government, regions, nation states, etc., there will be lessons learned and change processes initiated. But if you flip it and think about this also from a more kind of, a, as you mentioned, more a uh, top-down perspective, there will definitely for sure also be reform processes, policy changes initiated that way as well. 
Just look at the way we think about our societies from a crisis management perspective, the way we organize our systems for crisis preparedness. I mean, definitely that issue is now under the spotlight for sure. And there are uh, like the Swedish Corona Commission's, you know, other type of initiatives to uh, assess, evaluate and review the way our societies have responded to this. And I'm sure there will be kind of a knee-jerk reaction to this experience in the way that politically there's a need to do something. You have to act. There has been a major, major impact on our societies uh, worldwide. And there's definitely that window of opportunity is open. The question is, what will be the quality of those changes? How will we go about to reform our preparedness systems and uh, our approaches for thinking about emergency planning, etc.? Just look at the elderly care homes, as I talked about earlier, all the way down to the local level, the municipality organizations, etc. Will there be, I think, one of the most interesting questions is, How will societies balance this need to show decisive action in the wake of this major event? How will they balance that and the need for thought through objective diagnosis and carefully planned and executed reforms? That is something I would keep a close eye on. Daniel, you're certainly well-positioned to keep a close eye on these things. I'm sure this uh, pandemic will have a very strong influence on your research agenda and uh, your work with uh, the uh, Swedish Corona Commission. Professor Daniel Norstedt, Uppsala University, thank you very much for joining us here on the podcast. It's been a fascinating discussion and I really hope to have you back sometime in the not-too-distant future. My pleasure. Thank you, Eric.